and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Matthew Wylicki of the University of Alabama, where he is the erstwhile assistant professor of geological sciences. He received his PhD in geochemistry in 2014. His research interests include early Earth during the initiation of life on the planet, Asteroids, major extinction events, um, and climate science. Uh, published in many top-tier journals, dozens of articles, um, but most notably recently announced um, on Twitter uh, with a big response that he uh, would be stepping down from his position as assistant professor at Alabama at the end, I believe, of this semester. So we're lucky to have him here to ask a, a few questions of him and talk with him this afternoon. Um, Matthew, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I asked this of everyone. Um, let's say uh, uh, probably pre-college or in your early years of college, how did you get into geosciences? How did this become uh, an interest or a passion of yours? Yeah, so actually my original degree, my bachelor's was in biochemistry and cellular biology. Uh, I got that from the University of California in San Diego. Um, I always had a kind of scientific mind, I was very analytical, so I was, I was kind of steering towards that direction. Um, as a young, as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a kid and as a young adult, I was, I was very outdoorsy. I liked to ski, I loved to fish and fly fish, so I found myself outdoors a lot. And I was really enjoying the lab portion. I, I, I started working for a novel vaccine company after I graduated. And I was in the lab all day, and I, I really enjoyed that. But I was looking outside, out the window all day, too, thinking, man, it would be, what if I could merge my passion for being outside and outdoors and nature, but I could still have some sort of this analytical side, and I love the lab portion. And uh, it just became this kind of natural towards earth science because is this merger of rigorous science, geochemist, so I think the chemistry side, but you also spend a lot of time in the field and, and sampling rocks. And I've gotten to travel all around and spend many weeks in places like Tibet, for example, sampling different uh, rocks. And then we take them back into the lab and we can analyze them. And it was this beautiful merger of the field and outdoor activities and, and exploring the world, but also a lab component and a, you know, a rigorous scientific component there as well. And so it was just kind of a real progression for earth science. That's really interesting. I took, uh, I fulfilled my college science requirements with geology and I enjoyed those classes very much. Um, Many folks do. It's, yeah. It, it seems to be a little less, um, intimidating than things like physics or it was but honestly i was surprised at the amount of mathematical and empirical rigor to it in the lab that was something that struck me right away because i thought that i was getting away with uh let's just you know look at stones and stuff like that and there really is a uh, a heavy empirical thread running through it um yeah, so folks think it's going to be rocks for jocks and it's not yes that's what they used <laughs> to call it um <laughs> So on Twitter, I'm going to read a quote from a thread of tweets that you made recently when you announced your departure from your university position. 
you said the last few years, the obsession of universities and grant funding institutions on immutable characteristics of faculty and students and the push for equity in science above all else has dramatically changed the profession of an academic professor. The rise of illiberalism in the name of DEI is the antithesis of the principles that universities were founded on. Um, it sounds to me, and, and for a while, the narrative, I think, in the sciences was like, oh, all that wokeness, DEI stuff, that stuff of the humanities, we're kind of immune to it over here. Um, and there have been a growing number of scientists like yourself who have kind of sounded the alarm and said, no, it's not limited to the humanities and social sciences anymore. This is a bigger problem for the university. So could you talk to us a little bit? about the way that DEI plays out in the sciences? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, when I made that post, I hadn't, I didn't really have the data. I had a feeling I could, you know, I, I felt it. I felt that it was true. And remarkably, I was sent a, a, an article just that had been published just a month or two, I think in November of last year from the National Academy of Scholars. And they did a real simple uh, uh, a real simple way of an analyzing how much interrelation there is between STEM and DEI. And so they basically, they crawled a bunch of public institution pages and they investigated how often they saw DEI terminology and STEM terminology in the same page. And what you see is that from about 2010 to 20, there's just this gentle progression and it is increasing gently. And since 2020 to today, there was a five-fold increase in web pages that this, this DEI terminologies and, and STEM terminologies. And it really became apparent to me, and you know, I, I was feeling it already, but it, it kind of was the, oh yeah, I was right. This stuff really is infiltrating. But I, I, I saw it, I could feel it. I mean, every decision we were making, whether it was what students we were accepting into a graduate program, what possible postdoc we were going to hire, what new faculty member we were going to hire. Everything was always framed through a lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. And, you know, in a university setting, it's so strange because we're so merit-based, especially, you know, on in the STEM fields. We, you know, we're constantly giving grades and, and GPAs and taking tests. And this is a, a way for us to always try to, you know, figure out how well we've mastered the information. And we're such a merit-based institution. And there was just this shift away from that. And it was really eye-opening to me. And I started to think about what are the possible negative consequences because, you know, ultimately everybody says, don't bother, don't rock the boat, check the boxes, go through the hoops. We don't totally agree with this stuff either, but come on, man, like, you know, do you really want to die on this sword? And I really started to see that there's really a lot of negative implications and negative consequences, even though maybe the intentions are originally good, that to start to have a discussion about this stuff was very taboo. And when I made post and I talked about this, that's part of this illiberalism, the fact that you can't have the discussion. I was very quickly by faculty, by faculty university called the rape up publicly online. Um, I was linked to some anti-Semitic writings that happen in the university. I never talked about any of that stuff, but it really showed me that I approved my point. I mean, I was right. If you if you 
bring this stuff up. And I, I think that the post, it doesn't say anything terrible. I'm very, I try to choose my words very carefully that I think that the folks that's, that, and the intentions here are probably good. I agree that a more inclusive and a more collaborative university community would benefit the community. But if that's the goal and then the outcomes are that people are being alienated and self-isolating and going into their tribe, then we should talk about that because the intended goal isn't occurring in the outcomes. And as an analytical scientist, that's kind of what we do all the time. We make a hypothesis, we test that hypothesis, then we tweak it, right? And so it didn't seem that crazy to me to say the outcomes aren't what the intentions were originally, and we should have a discussion. Clearly, it's one of these subjects that you just can't right now in academia. And people love to label you know, if you ask questions, you get labeled into whatever, you know, derogatory term they want you. Of course, asking questions used to be the main business of a university, um, which is the, one of the sad parts to it. It sounds to me, and maybe I'm I'm making a, a leap here, but you sound to me like somebody who, if I had talked to you probably eight or ten years ago, would have sort of seeing these trends is relatively innocuous. They, you don't strike me just in talking to you as, as a, a, uh, ideologue. Um, you, I think that you're probably a pretty moderate guy. And I suspect that some of these trends are actually going to backfire on sort of left progressives as people who used to kind of go along to get along like you are pushed further to the margin because of the excesses of DEI and institutional, what I would call institutional leftism. Do you think that's happening? Yeah, I think that's probably an accurate um, depiction of my, of my state of mind. If you would ask me, so I have five and seven years, I think one big thing, you know, when I had children, when I was going through it, I was, it was self-preservation. It was, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. I'll jump through the hoops. I don't totally agree with this, but, you know, can it really be that bad, right? I didn't sp spend much time thinking about cultural implications, long-term implications, mental health effects. But the children, I, you know, it, it just, you, you just look at the world differently. It just, you, just, you know, it wasn't the same. It wasn't just about me. And I, I really started to shift. And instead of just go along to get along, I said, no, I'm going to rock the boat a little bit because I'm seeing negative outcomes. And I didn't, profession it to be this, being my family across the country and being so far away from their, you know, their, their grandparents, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't worth it. And so if, if it was going to be that I rock the boat so much that I, they, that I got rid of me, then so be it because, you know, that was okay. Um, I grew up, in, in, in California, but I was originally born in Poland, actually in communist Poland in 1978. And, um, you know, I grew up not getting to see my grandparents a lot. And I was willing to kind of take that sacrifice because this was my dream job. But when I started to realize all this stuff, it made it just a lot easier for me to say, look, I'm going to say, I'm going to speak my mind. And if people don't like it, so be it. And if there's career ramifications, okay, you know, I got I got a good educational background. I'll land on my feet. I'll figure it out. And so, yeah, I think that's probably a good depiction of if you would have asked me, yeah, probably right before I had kids, I would have told you, you know, 
what does you know just check the boxes just jump through the hoops like you know what's the big deal and but i i'm seeing that there is a big deal there are major implications to this so you and i are the same age i was born in 1978 also um, and I commend you on the fact that you've sort of vocally resisted this stuff as an assistant professor. That takes some, uh, some sand, as they say, uh, because you are at much greater risk for this kind of thing. I did a little bit of that before I got tenure, but I became much more vocal after the fact and probably, uh, you know, uh, emerged finally as a open right winger when I got full professor. Um, but uh, yeah, I wonder sometimes if that go along to get along attitude that you had was a, a very distinctively American attitude because we used to operate in this sphere where there, there didn't used to be a whole lot of political excess in America on either side. And I assume that to some degree, saying that you you were born in Poland back in the 70s, that probably the experience of your parents um, makes you a little more, uh, maybe your, your radar is a little keener for exactly the end of where these things go. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I find it fascinating that so many of the people that have reached out to me online is from the immigrant community. And it's always the same story. It's always, we know where this leads because we lived it. And that's why we left. And we came here to get away from that kind of stuff because of, you know, of playing on an even playing field and, you know, judging people by the content of their character was so important to them. And if you grew up in places like communist Poland, like my parents did, you couldn't speak out against certain things. There were things that you couldn't speak about, right? You get thrown in jail, maybe even worse. And so it's remarkable that it's the immigrant community that really sees this for what it is. And it's so many of these folks that grew up in the U.S. system, and they have no understanding of where these things lead. They just kind of jump through the hoops because you know, the truth is, is it's a huge sacrifice to go get a PhD. You're broke for a long time. And, you know, you finally get a job, you start to get an income. And oh my gosh, am I going to throw them out because I've been, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel, and I probably have student loan debt. And am I going to really, you know, say something that's going to put my job in jeopardy, even though I may not fully agree with it. And so it's, yeah, I just find it remarkable, but it definitely it's the influence of my parents is a huge aspect of that where, you know, they see, and they, they, they grew up in that type of environment and they made the ultimate sacrifice of leaving before the solidarity movement. So they couldn't even go back to see their families, you know, and they took me and my brother and my, my father couldn't even tell my mom that we were, weren't coming back. We came to visit. He had a visiting professorship here and Illinois in the States. And we were supposed to go for two weeks. We took a couple suitcases and that was it. And we got here and he said, you're not going back. And, um, you know, my mom was shocked, but you know, what a sacrifice they made for, for us to, for me and my brother to have so much opportunity to see it start to go back. And now that I have kids to think that, am I going to have to move with my kids to a different place to give them the dream that my parents moved here? Like, I hope that isn't the case. And so, 
I think it's, it is, it's a very privileged place to be, to think that you're doing the right thing without ever talking to folks that maybe lived through it prior to you or, you know, investigating other, other regimes and political, geopolitical situations and things. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a high privilege to kind of ignore all that stuff and push this without thinking about long-term fixes. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. Mid-2020, I was circulating a letter that I had written um, seeking signatories. Uh, and the letter essentially said, we're just not going to participate in DEI stuff anymore. If you want to require training, we're just not going to do it. And you can do what you want to do to us. Um, and I ended up getting about 200 signatories for that letter. Uh, but when I looked at these professors from all over the United States who had signed it, one thing that jumped out at me really quickly was how many Russian last names were on that list. Um, and I reached out to the signatories as a group and I said, you know, I just noticed like how many of you have Russian last names? I was like, how many of you had parents who lived in the Soviet Union? Almost all of them. They were all like, that's what did it. Right. And, and they could smell it a mile away. Um, you know, what was, what was in the air here? Um, and it's scared, you know, uh, and if it, it, God forbid, if you ever had to seek out a new opportunity as your parents did, where the hell do you seek it? Where's left to go? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. This is land of opportunity and there's not many others. And so, I mean, this country's given so much to my family and the opportunities we've had and our lives are so much better than they would have been if we would have stayed in Poland. And, you know, I just, I would hate to see this country go backward, even if this was done with good intentions, if it's having bad outcomes and we know where it leads, stop doing it. So can you talk about some of the specific excesses as far as DEI and sort of um, ideological creep that you personally have seen at the university? Yeah. So I would say one that stands out that I pushed back against pretty hard is the we're dropping the the GRE the graduate requirement exam for entrance into graduate school and this was done in a name of equity and so what this does is it basically takes information away from me when I'm trying to decide what graduate student will be successful or unsuccessful that will be coming to the university which we spend money on because we almost always fund our students um, they also TA and things, but the university is spending a lot of money. And we don't. We would like to get successful students that represent the university well and go off and make a bunch of money and hopefully donate back, right? As alumni, um, they're they're removing information from me. So I, me, some middle-aged white guy now has to figure out the lived experience of some kid in urban New York, some kid applying from Arkansas, somebody from China, somebody from Africa, right? supposed to somehow, without any personal bias of my own, understand their shared lived experience and, and pick who's going to be successful be, without them taking a standardized test so I can compare them a little bit in the name of equity. And I, I, it, I was like, wait, guys, okay, if a, if a faculty member doesn't want to use the GRE and doesn't want to put as much weight on it, that's their personal decision. But don't tell me that we're going to st tell students not to do this and that faculty members shouldn't be using this. And the claim is that this isn't a, pre a good predictor of, of success. 
in the graduate program, and that's absolutely not true. It is true that if you cut off all students at something like 310, right, and you only take students above, well, some of them will fail, right? But you've made this cutoff so high already that you're taking a, a complete, this isn't a random sample. <laughs> if you were getting some folks that were scoring 250 and 260, trust me, they would have done a lot worse. You're already you know, getting rid of the bottom because you're making some sort of number that they have to score above. And so in that sense, sense, of course, that some of those kids that scored well maybe won't make it, right? But if you don't have that metric and you're, you're taking students that maybe would have scored a two, 240 and they have terrible verbal skills and they have terrible quantitative skills, this is going to make it much more difficult for them to succeed, especially in a field like earth science that is very quantitative. And so how is this making anything more inclusive or how is this making it more equitable? And so I pushed back to the graduate school here at University of Alabama about that. So this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, what you should be encouraging them is to take up more different tests. Give me as much information as possible so that I can make the best decision on who's going to succeed and, and, you know, and end up in a, in a good productive career once they leave the university. And so that was probably one that, that I was shocked. And, you know, it, this is all over. This is happening in almost major institutions. They're removing the GRE. They're removing a standardized test in the name of, of equity, which I just don't understand how that's going to benefit how I decide on who's going to be a successful graduate student at the university. I, uh, it's interesting that you bring up this example because I was for almost 10 years the director of the graduate program at my university in, in my field. And I stepped down about three years ago, and certainly uh, the fact that we had gotten rid of our GRE requirement was one factor in that decision. But it wasn't for me, it wasn't really just that we didn't have GRE anymore. It started to feel, in some respects, predatory. You know, if if you uh, an admission to graduate school should be an implied statement on the university's part that says we believe you will succeed here. If it doesn't mean that, then there shouldn't be an acceptance. Right. And when we wipe away the these all these uh, standardized metrics of um, performance prediction. Right. We have no idea if they're going to be successful or not and when they're not. Right now, the student has taken out what twenty thousand dollars in in student loans to complete a degree they're never actually going to be complete. Have we moved them ahead in the game of life or back in the game of life if they never complete the, set their goal? And so, you know, it it felt predatory to me to a certain degree. Yeah, I agree. I think that. What you're seeing is that underrepresented students are being used as currency, essentially, to make universities appear better than their counterparts or more, you know, more inclusive or more woke or whatever the term would be. And if you look at the DEI policies for our University of Alabama, for example, <clears throat> there's very little, well, there's no, none of the policies uh, that are stated talk about success in the future after graduation. They don't care. They have right. no interest in understanding if these students are actually benefiting in the long run. They just want to say, hey, look at us. We have this minority population and Auburn's got less. We're better, right? And it's become like 
we're literally using people as currency to try to brag about how how you know noble we are without really any attention to whether this is having long-term benefits and in the stem fields we know it's not because the NSF provides us with the data and they showed us that there is an increase in the minority population in the stem fields through universities through these programs we have seen a small increase that is not reflected in them going off and getting careers at all right it's this the private sector and and the and industry they have this kind of notion that well if they have all these DEI programs maybe this kid isn't as on par with this other right applicant so i'm going to take the one that doesn't have this stuff and i was talking to quite a few african americans on twitter about this because i said i wanted to hear from the african american community and you know do they think that these are having these long term effects and how do they view this because you know i i can't speak for i can't speak for them and it was remarkable that people told me that back in the day they used to put ABB after their degree, or sorry, BAA after their degree, which stood for affirmation. So they were highlighting that they earned their degree and this was their GPA before any of this stuff got in, so that they were looked at as we, I, you know, I had the merit, I didn't have, you know, didn't get any benefit or anything like that, because they felt like people were. They, everybody thought that they didn't have to work as hard, right? It's this, it's this cultural thing that's much bigger than just the university that really started, I started to think about. And, you know, talking to my parents obviously was a big one too, that there's huge implications of this stuff. And we don't really feel it and we don't really see it. And we just kind of check boxes and jump through hoops. But if you take a step back and you think about the cultural implications and you each other, you know, between races, this has really a lot of consequences too. Yeah, absolutely. And and on another front, in um, I want to talk a little bit about your your research area because also in your chain of tweets, you you reference the this is a quote the science community's silence on the cl false climate emergency narrative. Um, I talked with Judith Curry, who I'm sure that you know, um, a, a couple weeks ago, um, a little bit about this. I am certainly a great skeptic of the alarmist narrative, but I'm also not a scientist. I'm an English professor, and so what I think about it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, but I'm always interested to talk to people who do have expertise in the, in the geologic sciences, um, to tell me, like, why is it, how do we know that this uh, climate emergency narrative, that we have this kind of impending doom, is, is in fact um, misguided or misrepresented to us? Yeah, so Judith is wonderful. Um, I think, you know, she's a great example of speaking out uh, against some of this stuff, right? Chair of one of the best earth science departments around at Georgia Tech and um, you know, it's it's clear that this stuff can't be talked about, and you know, I'm I'm not a climate scientist. I'm a I'm an isotope geochemist, so I work in a lot of the the same realms. We use the techniques, the same statistics, and and the same methods. Um, I usually work on things like early Earth and the origin of life, and I also don't work in the oil gas exploration part. So I felt that I could take kind of an objective look at the climate debate. I, I think I'm an expert in that 
in that realm because I'm using the same techniques, but I didn't have a flag on either side, so I felt like I could make an objective uh, opinion because it wouldn't benefit me or hurt me in either way. And, and what I started to realize was that the narrative of a catastrophe is just not actually in the empirical data. If you look at the empirical data, that you know the, the number of the humans that lose their life to, to natural disasters has dramatically decreased. And that has to do with a lot of things like infrastructure and early warning systems and everything like that. But if you also look at things like you know, the frequency of hurricanes. We don't see an increase. If you talk about just there's a, there's a center for the research in the epidemiology disasters, they keep a database called the Emergency Database, which keeps track of all kind of natural disasters and weather disasters. And they do this for the health side, but they keep a nice accurate record. And if you look back, there is no increase from 2020 to today when at that t in, th in those decades, CO2 has increased more rapidly than ever before. The warming, they claim, has increased more rapidly before. So I, I, analytical mind needs some sort of metric in order for me to call it a an emergency or a crisis, right? What metric can I use? I, I, I can't just say I feel that way. And I like to use metrics like loss of life or number of events that are occurring. And we're not seeing the narrative in the data where we see the narrative is in the models. But the, a model isn't science. I don't have a time machine to go in the future to see if the prediction is correct. And if a, a prediction or a hypothesis is unfalsifiable because it's untestable, that is no longer part of the scientific method, right? That's a prediction, great, I, I, I understand. I've heard the predictions now for now 20 or so years most of them are not coming true. And so I understand that there's a catastrophe in the models. I also understand that a model isn't science. And I focus on the empirical data that we have. We've been monitoring now everything like crazy for decades, tons of satellites and everything. It's clear the planet is warming. If you look at the record, there's never been a stable climate. There, so the climate can do one of two things. It can cool or it can warm. We are in a gentle warming period. I accept that. I think everybody pretty much accepts that. I think cooling is much more dangerous to human society than warming is. <laughs> but, you know, all of the other stuff that makes it a crisis or an emergency, which is basically, you know, loss of life or Al Gore talking about the oceans boiling and billions of people migrating, it's just not in the, in the data. There are migrations, right? But those people aren't leaving because it's a degree or two warmer or a degree warmer in the last hundred years. They're leaving places like Guatemala and Honduras because of geopolitical reasons, <laughs> right? So, you know, it, it's, it's clear to me that models can say whatever they want. And if you put all your weight in models, then you're going to have a really skewed outlook of what is happening, if, especially if you put your you know, trust in the models in 2000 and 2010, because none of those things are really happening. You know, the planet continues to warm, but humans are super ingenuitive. We're, we use technology to solve problems. We're amazing at solving our problems. We have empathy. And, you know, if you look at the human condition, it's really good. So much positive. And the, but it's just constant catastrophizing, right? These kids turn on the news or go onto Twitter or TikTok, and it's just flood, fire, you know, hurricane, flood, hurricane, fire, tornado. It's just like, you know, and as humans, we just have this 
natural tendency to focus on the negative, right? Even if there's a lot of positive, you kind of focus on the negative. I like to talk about, I play golf a lot, I'm terrible, but I hit a couple good shots, I don't think about them. But I shank one off into the, I'm thinking about that shot for the next four holes, right? It's kind of the human nature to focus on the negatives. And this is having really drastic effects on young people's mental health. And nobody considers that. Everybody just pushes this. And I blame the science community because we know media is going to exaggerate this stuff. And we know governmental panels that are full of bureaucrats and politicians is going to do that. Be focusing on the scientists should be speaking out and saying, hey, hey, hey. That's my manuscript. I wrote that. And if you read my manuscript, it doesn't say all of what you just said. You know, we choose our words very carefully. If you actually look at the science, they're very careful. But they also are like, hey, well, what's the negative, right? They're just giving us more attention. We're going to get more funds. So, you know, they stay silent. And that was when I was talking silence of the year of sanity. And it's just, it's just, this was probably because I've recently a father or the last seven years I started really thinking about other implications, you know, I'll, probably if you would have asked me eight years ago, just like with the DEI stuff, I would have said, yeah, it's overblown and everything, but what's the harm, right? Let's protect the planet, let's good environmentalists, like what's the harm? Now I'm like, wow, this is having the exact opposite effect again. If you want to motivate a young person to be a good steward of the environment, don't tell them the planet's going to end in a decade. Sure. One thing that I've noticed with especially my youngest students, freshmen, sophomores, is that they are very reticent to say that they know anything for sure. And and this is a good impulse because they actually do know very, very, very little. Um, but two things that all of them think they know. Number one is diversity is good. Number two is the world's going to end because of climate change. Um, and it, almost uniformly, Americans who are 20 years old, they don't know what they believe, but they believe those two things. Um, but you mentioned... Very confidently. Oh, yeah. Yep. You mentioned the science, and I have in front of me the... I don't know if my thing's going to pick it up. I the climate it. report. This is... Uh, and it's called NC. A4, as you know, um, but listeners might not. But this is um, the National Climate Assessment of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. In other words, the government report on climate change. And I want to ask you about this because I'm a little skeptical that the, the science is, is, is as careful as you say. Um, in making these, these, you called them predictions, which I think is the accurate word, the scientific community likes the term projections. Um, but I think predictions is probably the better word to use. Uh, but in this report, they specify um, their measures of confidence. In other words, when they give one of these predictions, um, they, they give a, a quantification of how confident are we that this is accurate. And when I look at this chart, uh, this is for anybody who has this document, it's on page eight. But they list these confidence levels. And for high confidence, this is, I'm going to read to you where they set the bar for a high confidence prediction. It says, moderate evidence where there are several sources with some consistency, where methods vary and or documentation may be limited, comma, a medium consensus. That's a quotation. Now, as a layperson and as a rhetorician, I'm reading that and saying, 
why does a high confidence high confidence prediction require only a medium consensus and moderate evidence? Do you have any insight on that? I'll tell you exactly why, because otherwise there would be no high confidence in anything that they were choosing. Any one of their metrics that they use, they wouldn't be able to claim that it has high confidence. So what do they use? They use all these wishy-washy words, may, could, you know, um, and it's clear that they're setting this up so that they can make claims. They're not, this isn't about climate science. This isn't about reporting on the nature or the state of the planet. This is about push, pushing policy. That's what it's become. And this is all about pushing certain policy agenda. And they know that if they made what I would consider a real rigorous high confidence metric, you know, some number of people must agree or you know, need to be able, it's been and, and, it, and it's been repeated multiple times and um, none of their things would ever be able to get to that metric. So what do they do? They lower the metrics can claim high confidence when clearly in any, if you went to the doctor and he said, I have high confidence that you have cancer because you may have cancer. And I, you know, a couple of, uh, you'd be like, wait a minute, I'm going to go get a second opinion. Like, you know, right. <laughs> so it's, this is, this is when politics gets intertwined with science and no, it's super so unfortunate. Let me ask you another question. Cause when I look at this and I say, that just doesn't add up. Right. As someone who studies rhetoric, I say I can think of two reasons for this. One reason is that they really that the scientists really are deeply convinced that we have an impending catastrophe and that the only way they can push public policy in the direction that it needs to go is to scare the hell out of everybody. That's option one. The other option is that they don't really believe this that they know that they're misrepresenting um, the, the potential for catastrophe, but that the public policy measures that would need to be taken to save us from this non-existent catastrophe would align very neatly with certain political objectives that they also like, i.e., say, um, the, the socialism of the old Eastern Bloc. Right. Um, I don't see how like if there was this impending climate catastrophe, then basically that's what we need is agrarian socialism is the only thing that can save us at this point. Is that a, a happy coincidence, not a coincidence? Uh, what's your take on that? I think that people fall into both. I think that option two is the people at the top. This is the World Economic Forum. This is the top of the U.N., IPCC? IPCC, absolutely. Not the necessarily the scientists, but we're talking about the bureaucrats, the policymakers. You know, people think that it's a science panel. No, it's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a governmental panel. And I think that a lot of the young scientists are option one. I think they really do believe it. I think that they've been convinced and you know, the PR machine is huge and it, you know, it's, it's very, it's been very successful. Like we talked about, the students are very confident in this. And, you know, I think that the people that are, that know option two are taking advantage of the people that in option one, right? And it's, it's, it's so, it's just so disheartening to see because it really, it affects scientific integrity. I have another problem down the road. And if people don't trust science and trust scientists because, you know, they think that they're going to get 
intertwined with politics and everything and what they see isn't real, then the next challenge is going to be that much more difficult to overcome. And so I really think it's option two for the top. And certainly they're taking advantage of the people that believe in option one. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like it makes sense to me. Um, I think we I only have a couple more questions for you, because I'm sure you have other things you would like to get to today. But um, I told you before that in some sense, I'm always impressed when a person with tenure track position or a tenured position says, that's it. It's gotten too crazy. I've got other things to do. Right. Um, but. Uh, I am also personally bummed out because it means one less person in in the fight, um, one less person to serve as a counterbalance in um, the ever uh, intensifying ideological climate. Um, I wonder, I know that you're leaving University of Alabama, but do you think that higher education in the United States is still redeemable at this point? I mean, can the university be saved from these things? Uh, or do we just need to develop alternate structures for uh, academic and intellectual inquiry because the old model is just gone? I hope that it can. I, I'm pretty confident that it can. The reception I've gotten has been really good. Um, I agree with you that you know staying in the fight would be great. Um, but I, you know, now with things like social media or podcasts like yours, man, I think I'm going to have. I'm going to be able to reach so many more folks, maybe so many more young folks in terms of climate, so many other faculty members things about DEI than I probably ever could if I would have wrote a manuscript about climate change, right? That maybe gets cited a hundred times if I'm lucky after a decade, right? And so, you know, this there's this just new form of media now where, you know, I I'm going to miss the students. I I, I do feel somewhat cowardly that I'm walking away. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm no longer shackled. I, the chains are off and I'm going to speak louder than I spoke before and the mess seems to be receptive. And so, you know, if we could just open the feet to discussion, that would be such a huge benefit to academia and would be, I think, would save it if there was nothing taboo and we were open to talk and nobody was scared that they were going to be labeled something if they asked the wrong question, you know, that could really redeem academia. But it doesn't seem to be going that way. But, you know, more and more folks are kind of speaking up and walking out. And I think the universities, if they start losing good people, maybe we'll start rethinking some of these things. I think you've got more faith than I do. Um <laughs> I think that I think that uh, I I think that um, they're they're happy when guys like you and me show ourselves the door. Um, they shouldn't be, but I think that they are. Um, and uh, maybe maybe not. It, it, I don't know your situation in Alabama, uh, but I'm I'm saying generally, not about you specifically. Oh, they're um, happy. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, Dr. Wylicki, it's been a fantastic conversation. I wish you the best. Um, I have no doubt that you land on your feet and that there probably are much greener pastures for you outside of higher education than, than inside higher ed. Um, and I want to thank you again for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate you having me. All right.